In this episode of 9 to y Talks, Dan Pfeiffer, host of Pod Save America and former Obama White House communications director, discusses his new book, Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump, with Peter Hamby, the host of Snapchat's first original mobile show, Good Luck America. The conversation was recorded on June 20th, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hello, liberals. <laughs> I'm sorry, love it can't be here tonight. <laughs> uh, a lot of friends of the pod here, huh? Uh, <laughs> I, meant, I meant Ben Shapiro's podcast. You should go to the 91st Street Y. Um, uh, it's really cool to be here with Dan. Uh, Dan and I were in Washington ar- like around the same time. Dan and I both went to Georgetown. He's I'm much older than me. Much older. Much older. But Dan was in the White House uh, yelling at CNN reporters, and I was a CNN reporter. Um, We didn't really interact that much, actually. I was sort of out covering campaigns and Republican politics. I wasn't in the White House press corps, but um, Dan and I do agree on a lot of things. One, we love and hate Georgetown basketball. Uh, We love the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and we do share a lot of the same thoughts about the media. Despite being a journalist, we agree on a lot of things about how Twitter has changed politics uh, about how much cable news sucks, and also, you know, how reporters are having an incredibly difficult time covering uh, Donald Trump. And I just read his book. I hope everyone here has a copy. Um, Dan will be signing copies afterwards. Uh, it's a really great peek, not necessarily into, you know, the back rooms of the White House. There is that, but it's really astute look at politics and media at a time when we're all trying to figure this stuff out. Um, so, to start. Before you ask your yeah. first question, can I just say thank you to Adrian yes. and Swing Left because <clears throat> they have been great partners, as Adrian said, they've been great partners to us at Pod Safe America and to the guys at Crooked Media. They, I'd spent a lot of time with the Swing Left San Francisco group. They are awesome. And when I started to do this book and I thought, what is the best way, how, what will be, make this the most, the selling of the book, which can be It's an interesting experience, but what's the way to make it feel the most fulfilling and the most useful would be to take a portion of the proceeds and give it to Swing Left. And so I created this challenge to say, can we sell 10,000 books before the pre-sale day? And so that'd be by midnight, um, Monday night. I've lost all track of time between the book and the baby, but- uh, Congrats. Thank you. Uh, But I'd like to say that not only did we meet the 10,000 goal, we got up to 18,000 by Monday night. So thank you to all of the friends of the pod. Um, Nice plug. Uh, (laughs) Before we get into the book, um, I want to ask you about today's news. The president signed an executive order ostensibly ending his policy uh, to separate migrant children (laughs) uh, from uh, people crossing the border. Um, Aside from the policy, what... That was one of the rare times since Trump's taken office where he's been on his heels, where he's been backpedaling, where he's been forced to cave. Um, What does that tell us about uh, the information cycle we're in, about how media and Democrats reacted, and, and how does it inform how the media and Democrats can move forward in responding to Trump? I think it's important to note that while he is signing an executive order reversing his own policy that he said he could not reverse, Um, 
We don't know exactly how that's going to play itself out in it. We may just be going from detaining children to detaining children and families together indefinitely. So it's not a victory for human rights. But you're right that for the first time in a long time, it feels like the old rules of politics applied, that there was a crisis, it, was, it became a media firestorm, politicians got upset, Donald Trump felt heat, and then he reacted to that. And so why, why is this one different? You've probably, there's maybe a handful of times this has happened. It happened around the Muslim ban in the early stage of the administration. It happened when he decided to declare that Nazis were very fine people. Um, it happened around the attempts to uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act. And the thing that run, runs through those, to me, is immediate, massive mobilization from people around the country. If, reporters on Capitol Hill were saying that this is the most the phone lines have been burned up by people calling upset about something since the Affordable Care Act was on the floor of the House. And so that says something, that people can still influence what's happening. The other thing that makes this one, I think, especially powerful is images. You know, that audio, the ProPublica audio of the children crying that just breaks everyone's heart, the, the images of these children behind cages. And I think the Trump people went so far beyond the pale in the lying about this that even the, like the, even their massive propaganda machine couldn't cover this up. Where you, know, you have Kirsten Nielsen who says, who tweets on Sunday we don't have a policy, and then on Monday is in the briefing room defending the policy. And so like they, they, they pushed it so far that even they had to suffer consequences in this media age. But the thing, so the thing always is, what can we do? The only thing we can do is mobilize and raise hell as loudly as we can, as soon as we possibly can. And that happened here in a way that caused Republicans to tell Trump, you got to back off. And but so there was, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this policy was instituted in early May. There were lots of print reporters yeah. covering the stuff on the border. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, like the travel ban, yeah. the Rob Porter scandal yeah. is a good example. Yeah. All of the things where there was an indisputable image, that's when, that's when Trump felt like he was, had to Yeah, it, it's an image that is being shared on social media, mostly Facebook, uh -huh. at massive level. And it, like, whether it's the audio or the image of these kids, the, with Rob Porter, it was the interviews with his ex-wives and the and pictures of them. And the pictures of them. Mm -hmm. and, that, and, and that's because that always takes it from, you know, in this world where, you know, Fox News or Breitbart or whoever else can tell you that the grass is blue and the sky is green, it's hard to deny the picture. And so there is nothing more valuable in this. It's always been true, whether we were like back in the old days of just cable news and print TV, so an image would be more powerful. But now that that image can be shared instantly to millions of people, then it's going to be more powerful. So you wrote in the book that after the 2010 shellacking, the midterm <laughs> election, everyone in the White House went back to the drawing board and really rethought their strategy, including yourself. Yeah. Um, and really tried to think about how can we do communications differently. And one thing you write in the book is that you declare that the bully pulpit is dead. In other words, we live in this fragmented media environment where people are getting tidbits of information from text messages and Netflix and Twitter and Snapchat and wherever else. Snapchat and plug. Snapchat in particular. <laughs> yes. um, and you don't need to go through the filter of no. the Washington press. However, uh, it does feel like Donald Trump has brought the bully pulpit back in a weird way. He seems to have mastered attention capture. He is inescapable. Everything he tweets and says is covered 
relentlessly. Do you think the bully pulpit is back under him? No, not in the same way. Like, we all, like Donald Trump has definitely captured the mind share of people. And it's not clear that that is a positive thing. I mean, it's definitely not a positive thing for the world. I don't know that it's a positive thing for him either. But what what he... I mean, if you look, like, put aside, like, whatever, like, burp in the Gallup numbers happened this week, he has historically low approval ratings. He has struggled to get most of his agenda through. His campaign manager's in jail. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that is true, Positive America fans love it when Trump people go to jail. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We do this video before our shows, and we show, like, Obama, Biden. Clap, clap, clap. The picture of Bob Mueller, people go fucking crazy. Yes. (laughs) They were even cheering for Comey for a while there. Oof. That's Um, tough. I think what what, there are lessons for Democrats to learn in Trump's ability to shape the conversation. Like, he is not having success in convincing people beyond his base to believe what he believes. Like, he he has failed at that. What he, what he was able to do in 2016 and what he is able to do now is, and it's not just Trump and his Twitter account. This is not, he's not some genius plan that he and, I don't know, he doesn't have a communications director, but if he this, did. This is a total mythology about Trump that he's some kind of new media savant. Yeah. I have a friend at the Times who calls him a unfrozen media caveman. Like yeah. he cares about the front page of like Time Magazine, like print tabloids. Yeah. And he just kind of like stumbled into Twitter. Yeah. His power is that the media latches on to everything he says on Twitter and then amplifies it. I, I describe in the book the reason why Donald Trump is good for this fragmented social media age, which is his two experiences with media are he grew up with the New York tabloids, where the juicier and the more pugilistic, the more coverage you got, and he was a reality TV star. And that is like the perfect combo to, to own this era. But so what is, I think, so important to understand, and this is what is the problem for progressives. And it's why we have Pod Save America, and it's why John, John, and Tommy started Crooked Media and we're building, and building out this podcast empire, is the Republicans have this massive apparatus. We think about Fox News, but it's so much more than Fox News. It's Breitbart, it's Gateway Pundit, it's a bunch of these Pizzagate Twitter trolls with nearly a million followers. And what they are doing is they are constantly pumping pro-Trump content into the social media ecosystem and anti-democratic content into the social media ecosystem. And they have figured out a way to do it that they've understood that the way to sort of gig Facebook to make their content viral is outrage. Piss people off, make people comment on it, make people yell about it, and it gets shown to more people. And here's the Democratic plan up through 2016. We're going to give a press conference, and then the New York Times is going to cover our press conference, (laughs) and it's going to get... No, it's going to go nowhere on social media. Dude, and, it makes me so mad. Yeah, it makes me mad too. And what, and like, we knew, we learned this in the White House, and we tried to do lots of things. That's why we did interviews with BuzzFeed, and we had, uh, we used Pete Seuss's photos to c- convey our stories, and we did YouTube interviews, and we, did we do Snapchat? We did Snapchat. Obama, yeah. You, yeah. We interviewed Obama at the end of the campaign, and yeah. Biden. Biden did it before, before Obama. Well, we, he, Biden is a media savant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and so, like, we have, to, we have to build up an infrastructure of progressive media organizations. It's not just organizations like we need another Mother Jones or American Prospect. We need smart, digitally-oriented activist media organizations who are trying to help Democrats win, not just pass 
liberal policies. We, all need, we need that too. I want to drill down a lot more on what Democrats need to be doing okay. better in a minute because I share a lot of those thoughts. I want to talk about Donald Trump some more. Weirdly. Okay, yeah, let's do that. Um, no one does that ever. Just to, yeah, <laughs> yeah. no one does that ever. Yeah, to prove uh, Peter's point, we're going to talk about Donald Trump. Yeah, until um, 10 o'clock p.m. Um, just to give everyone nightmares here tonight, walk through the path whereby Donald Trump wins again. How does that happen? <laughs> Here's how it happens. No one reads my book. <laughs> no one listens to the lessons in there. No. I mean, I don't want to depress people here. I won't do that because it's a hopeful book, people. Because um, you've all read it. Um, is incumbents pres incumbent presidents usually win. And they the times when they lose in our history, two things have been in place. Three things, actually. A tough economy. A, a primary challenge from their ideological flank and a third party challenge who in the middle who sucks up votes. So, so you take George H.W. Bush, the one that at least some of you in this room are probably alive for. And uh, so Bush challenged from the right in the primary, had to move to the right to win. Ross Perot runs. Clinton people tell you to this day that that did not help Bill Clinton win, but it helped Bill Clinton win. And, <laughs> And so it's unlikely that Trump will be challenged from the right in the primary because... Like, there is no right. There, yeah, well, I don't know yeah. what that would be. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, who is that person? Um, the maybe real St Nazis. Steve Bannon. Maybe Steve Bannon oh, okay. will do it, yes. <laughs> and, and, but there could be a third-party challenge in the middle. But this would be... So that, that could happen, and it could happen if... Democrat, it really comes down to... If Democrats allow Trump to once again define what I'm sure will be a very excellent, very qualified candidate as just simply another politician like Trump. Like Trump won that election for three reasons. The Russians, Jim Comey, <laughs> but most importantly, he was able to make himself the lesser of two evils with Hillary Clinton. And when it seems like, because Republicans win when people don't turn out. And so if you're just like, fuck it, like, I don't want to wait in line. Like, who cares? Both these people are bad. And you heard that throughout the campaign. I heard that going door to door in Vegas before the election. I heard it talking to people in California who were like, yeah, I hate Trump, but like, what difference does it make? Like, Hillary's crooked, I hear, somewhere. And, and if they can do that, then and people don't turn out, we'll lose. We only turn out, we only win if people are motivated to not just to beat Trump, because that, that can help us win the midterm elections, but you have to be fired up. People were very fired up in 2004, which I assume some of you are alive for, uh, for that election to beat George Bush, but they weren't fired enough, up enough for John Kerry, and he lost. So we need, the, like the, the way it happens is Trump is able to once again define the Democratic nominee as another crooked politician. Because it's like, if everyone's a liar and everyone's crooked and everyone's corrupt, Trump's corrupt, Democratic candidate X is corrupt, then either I'll just, I, will, I won't vote, which is a bigger problem, or I'll just vote for Trump because the economy is doing pretty well. Like, that's how, that's how Trump wins. And it, I mean, it, it's a very clear plan. There are things we can do to prevent it, but you can, like, I can see that I can write, I would not write this book, but you can write a book about how it happened. Um, but there's a fourth reason he won, which is that the, he's an earned media bazooka. Like the national media, in particular television news, in the Republican primaries, gave him 
limitless free airtime, and that continued to the point where in the general election, you know, you might disagree with me, but like paid media didn't really matter that much. Everything was earned media and social media, and Democrats need to figure out a way to penetrate that wall. Yeah, so I think Trump definitely won the Republican primary because he got all the oxygen and none of those other very terrible politicians could. You don't like Bobby Jindal? <laughs> I was really more of a Carly Fiorina type. Oh, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was the person who ran for Deep president. Cut. Yeah. Um, and in the general, it sort of reverted back to the traditional here with the Republican, here with Donald Trump today in Ohio, he said X. Here in, well, I was going to say Wisconsin, but that's a bad idea. Here in, <laughs> here in Florida with Hillary Clinton, uh, they did this. What I think it, what it became of what I think Trump's victory, because he didn't follow any of the normal rules, the quote-unquote normal rules. What I do think it, the lesson to Democrats in there are the following things. Can I do the lessons for Democrats now? Do it. Okay, one, uh, compelling, he had a very simple, clear, and compelling message. When I would go to panel, very depressing panel discussions after the election that I had agreed to before the election, <laughs> so when I thought they would be fun, and I would talk to people and I would say, what was Donald Trump's message? Well, you guys don't have to answer this, so I'll, I'll play it out for you. He would, they would say, make America great again. And I would say, what's Donald Trump's argument against Hillary Clinton? And they would say, like, crooked Hillary, corrupt, it was all of the same thing. Then I would say, what was Hillary Clinton's argument for herself? And it was kind of quiet. It, like, some people say stronger together, people say qualified, but it, pe there, was not, people, there was not a consensus around what it was. Can I work for Barack Obama? You do that, and they say, hope and change. Like, everyone says it. Then I ask, what, is the, what, is the, what was Hillary's argument about, against Trump? And the room erupts with a thousand things, all true, all disqualifying, <laughs> but different. Corrupt, incompetent, offensive, racist, sexual assaulter, misogynist, every, like everything you can possibly be. And what came of that is there was not a clear story. Like what, is the re like, what is the story about why Trump is terrible? Now, it's not, I don't blame the Clinton campaign for this. Part of it is Trump was so terrible that, and she was and morally obligated to make some of these arguments. You can't, like, no one wants to turn off her candidate who's like, that guy's definitely racist, but I'm not going to say it because it's not, it doesn't pull well. Like, that's bad, so we don't want that. But I think the lesson to be learned is, you're going to have to pick, you have to at least have a hierarchy of horribles when it comes to Trump and tell that story. The second thing is, Trump didn't do polling, he didn't spend money on TV ads, he didn't have the same sort of field organization the Democrats traditionally use. And it did say that in the social media age, the old models of how you win campaigns are broken. Polling is less effective than it was before because it is... Ten, it is like 10 times as hard to get people on the phone. Like who, who would answer their, who in this room would answer their phone from an unknown number? <laughs> yeah, no one. And so when we were doing polling calls in the 08 campaign, it was hard to get people on the phone. In 2012, the response rate dropped 50% in those four years. I'm told from people who worked in 2016, it dropped 50% again. Really? And so she was like, no, like I would never answer the phone from someone I don't know. <laughs> never. I have missed multiple Postmates deliveries for that reason. The <laughs> <laughs> sponsor plug. And, uh, and TV ads are, they're not an entirely a waste of money, but they're a large waste of money. And they're Trump, a pretty big waste of money. 
There are still some voters you can only reach with very well-targeted TV ads. Raise your hand if you've watched a television ad in the last week. That's probably yeah. what, like, a, like less than 5% of this yeah. crowd. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is not just about TV, like the use of TV ads. Mm -hmm. I also don't watch television ads. Mm -hmm. And I've been in California, where I live, and we had a big primary where lots of money was spent. And we have been having, since the baby was born, we've had a very different TV schedule in our house. And my mother-in-law has been staying with us, and she really likes CNN. And so we've had CNN all the time. And so I'm seeing uh, campaign ad after campaign after campaign ad. All, they're basically all for Democrats running against each other. And there is nothing. I've been in politics for 20 years. I graduated college 20 years ago this month. I'm old. We know. And, uh, the, and I started in politics right then. Nothing has changed less in 20 years than political television ads. It's the same voiceover, the same blurry picture, the Guy same... Guy in a factory, like, someone in a kitchen table. Yeah, but, yeah, I mean, it's so... Button-down blue shirt. How is it possible that we've had innovated 0% in 20 years? And it's actually not... 20 years my, answer, my answer is the, the same, same media consultants who are able to game the system and ingratiate themselves with candidates with money and the innovative digital people don't get to punch through that ceiling. Yeah, that's, that's my exactly, that's hot exactly take. right. And it's not really more than 20 years because I just picked 20 years as long as I've been in politics. If you look at ads from like the 92 Bill Clinton race or these other races, they're not that different either. It's always been the same. And so it will be, the advice I would give any Democrat running for president is if you want to win in the field of 95 candidates that we're gonna have, that you want to question every assumption about how our campaigns have been run and look for every inefficiency because the candidate that figures that out, which Obama, we, we ran TV ads, they were still effective in 08, but we did lots of things differently than anyone's ever done before because we thought we had to to win because we were such a new and different candidate. And that's what we need here is we need to be like, oh, is this how we did it in, 20, in 2016, 2012, 2008, 1978? Don't do that. Think about something totally different. It's not just don't like, this is the thing about the same TV consultants. It's like, we'll do digital ads. So we'll put that same shitty TV ad on Facebook and we'll say we're doing digital. Yeah. And that's a, that's a huge mistake. So in, t in thinking about Democrats in 2020, you talk in the book about how news cycles are dead. In 2008, on your campaign, the most important thing to do every morning was get on the Today Show and get on the front page of the New York Times. Imagine that being a like, valid political strategy today. Yeah. Um, you refer to the news cycles or whatever that means now as the, quote, content monster. Yeah. Trump does an incredible job of feeding that content monster, perhaps not out of strategy, it's just his sort of id. But <laughs> out of narcissism yeah, and security. Yes. Whatever that is. Yeah. Um, but what, I see it with Bernie Sanders, who creates his own content, distributes it um, on all kinds of platforms, and has a following that exists almost completely outside the Washington ecosystem, but is nevertheless huge. Yeah. Is there anyone in the you know, putative 2020 field that's actually doing this? Because you know, these aren't presidential candidates, but I see Schumer and Pelosi just do press conferences and you're just like, do Democrats have any clue anymore? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I don't see anyone yet who is doing something super innovative. It is pretty hard to do the super innovative. Bernie Sanders can do it. He's good at it. 
but he can also do it because he has this outside political operation that is mm -hmm. the essentially the remnants of one presidential campaign and the foundation for a, a coming presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. If you are, take here's in Gillibrand, a, a senator I like very much, if you just are a... But if you're, if you're just Kirsten Gillibrand working out of your Senate office, you have none of the tools to do some of these things. So we don't, it's too early to say whether we can judge. I, don't, I disagree with that. I mean, like Bernie hired a guy from now this literally just to yeah. churn out content. I think you can do that. Yeah, I, I do think uh, it is um, the content. Let's talk about the content monster for a second yeah. and talk about how it applies to Democrats. What I mean by it is we live in this, the media need, the, and I say the media, I don't mean CNN and the New York Times. I mean everyone with that internet access. Everyone who was posting, sharing, podcasting. Um, they, like, we, you're trying to fill space. And so you want something to talk about. And if you don't get something to talk about, you'll find something to talk about. And by talk about, I mean tweet about, post about, write about, Snapchat about, video about. And the challenge, this is where Democrats, I think, are behind Republicans. Republicans have, were, were raised, especially young, like the younger generation of Republican operatives, were raised on the idea that the media hates them and they should hate the media. And when I say media in that case, I mean legacy, mainstream media, lamestream media, whatever. And <laughs> they, uh, and so they built an alternative to it, another way to get their message out. And what, and I talk about this in the book where, when I was in the White House Communications Director 2009, 2010, I spent 80% of my time thinking about traditional media. Like, we want to get our message out. What interviewer are we going to do? What reporter are we going to talk to? How do we, who, where are we going to post this op-ed? Uh, that was it. Like, the, our way, what time are we going to do the event so we can get on the news? And I think that most Democratic campaigns in 2016, I don't think they spent 80% of their time on it, but they spent 60% of their time thinking about traditional reporters. And the problem with that is, that is an outdated view of how communications works. The communications director of the next Democratic presidential campaign, the Democratic nominee, needs to be someone who thinks about their job entirely. They should not even be called the communications director. They should be called the chief content officer. And their job should be to think about how to create content the campaign can use to win votes. And that can be Original, like, original videos on YouTube, it can be GIFs, it can be um, Facebook posts, it can be tweets, it can be articles. Like, like, we need content to share with people that proves that our economic plan works. Let's go try to pitch the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal on a story about our economic plan where they talk to uh, economic experts who say our, economic, our numbers add up. And then we can take that content. Yeah, it's fine that people in the New York Times read it, but who gives a shit? What we really care about is we want to take that piece of content, we want to use all of our tools, digital advertising, Twitter account, Facebook account, Snapchat account, and share that content with our targeted voters, who we know from our data are who are interested in an economic plan that balances. And so we have to think, in t like, we like, it sounds like propaganda, but it's not propaganda because we want to make it truth and fact-based, but we have to be ministers of information and not just people who manage a unruly press corps with diminishing value. And so that is the real mind shift that I think Democrats need. And I'm not sure people have entirely figured that out yet. And I think 
for people in this if audience. If they read my book, they might, but. <laughs> but no, but for, that's an opportunity for people in this audience too. Like if you're a young person who cares about politics, you don't have to work on a presidential, work on a state Senate campaign or a mayor's race or whatever. Yeah. You guys don't know how much you know about how you receive information and what content connects with people. Trust me, if you go to Washington, you are actually way smarter about how normal people communicate than a lot of the people running campaigns. Just yeah. trust us on that. Yeah, I, I told, when I left the White House in 2015, I wrote this long exit memo that was the product of a two-month-long project talking to everyone in Silicon Valley about how do you communicate better? Like, what could we learn? Because we had fallen behind the curve in a pretty bad way. And one of the, things, one of the great pieces of advice was always have, have at least two people under the age of 23 on your staff. Because they're going to know a lot more than you do about what, like, how people are really getting their information. And so, like, youth is actually, if I, was, if I was hiring on a presidential campaign, I would hire almost entirely young people who have not worked in Washington because you're going to be smarter and you're not going to have conventional wisdom beaten into your head. Um, one of your other lessons for 2020 you write about in the book is uh, it's about being, quote, funny and cool. Obama had that. Like, he was cool and funny. Um, you know, with all due respect to all of the exciting 2020 Democrats, trying really hard to be funny and cool, then you end up with Hillary Clinton doing a Snapchat where she's saying, I'm just chilling in Cedar Rapids, and it doesn't work. Um, I almost moved out of the country the, after the dab videos, where Hillary Clinton oh, learned to dab, yeah. Yeah, my favorite was when Hillary uh, said you need to Pokemon Go to the polls. Um, you know, you can't just be funny. No. Like, you can't try to be funny and cool. Like, who, who is funny and cool other than you? <laughs> other other yeah. than me, yes. Um, th like, my point with this is, I think you can, like, funny and cool have a broad definition, right? It doesn't necessarily mean you're a hipster or yeah. a stand-up comedian. Um, but you can, I think it's incumbent upon campaigns to create a strategy that is authentic to the person. And so let me tell you this. I spent a lot of time on Air Force One and in foreign countries with Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is actually really goddamn funny. She really is. She is a sharp, biting sense of humor and is also, contrary to this, a tremendously warm and decent human being. And Can I say one thing? Yeah. Um, she is obviously uh, has a chilly relationship with the press. Um, I covered her in 2008. I was like in the bubble with her traveling. It is actually pretty remarkable the difference between when she's under the, the lights and then behind the scenes. Like on the plane, she, would, she loves drinking Blue Moon. She likes college basketball. Like she is actually yeah. a, a different person, I think, than the one you see. In and public. I actually don't blame her for there being a difference between backstage and in front of the camera. If you were Hillary Clinton and you had been through what she had been to and treated like she'd been treated... Uh, over 40 years, you can under, it's understandable. It's, it doesn't necessarily work in a campaign, but it's understandable why it would make sense to be more guarded. But so she's not running again. Um, so what are we going to do going forward? I think that funny and cool can also mean relatable and approachable, right? Everyone, every politician has, well, every, other, every person who I know who is potentially running for president in 2020 has a very normal side with normal interests, right? And they should not be afraid to share those or talk about those. If you're passionate about something, other than like political issues or policy, 
and like you care about sports or you care about music or you like TV shows. Find, find, it's incumbent upon the, the, can, the campaign to give them opportunities to talk about that in normal ways. And mm. the problem, what, what prohibits you from doing that is risk aversion. So when I was working for Obama, we were, TV Guide comes to the candidates, this is back in 2008, and says, what are your, TV, that's how you know TV Guide. It was like a magazine, <laughs> TV, you, had, you need to know what time TV came on so you could watch it. <laughs> Super fucking weird. Weird. And, yeah. And, <laughs> TV Guide, this thing that existed, came, it's not the button on your, on your computer, uh, on your TV, your remote control, uh, came to us and said, we want to write, we're doing a Q&A, what are your favorite shows? And so it was my job to go to ask Obama what his favorite shows were. And so I went down, I was given a list of potential options. I can't remember what they were on, but it was like, we had to brief them, and so we had to be like, here are some choices. And it, they were like, Terrible. I can't even remember that. It was just like vanilla, right? It's like we're gonna offend no one. And I went to hand it to him, and he's like, "What is that?" I was like, "Well, we came up with some choices for you." <laughs> and he was like, "Of TV shows that I watch." <laughs> and I was like, "I mean, it was someone else. It was Axelrod's idea. I don't know." <laughs> and so it wasn't really Axel's idea, um, but he. <laughs> And so we were like, I was like, well, what shows do you like? He's like, well, my favorite show on TV right now is The Wire. And I was like, I like The Wire. And so, and I was like, well, do you want us to say that? I was like, it's a show about drug dealing. <laughs> <laughs> and you wrote a book about doing drugs. Like, <laughs> he's like, well, it's the show I'm watching and I like it. <laughs> so he's like, why would I do something different? And I was like, good point, sir. I'll be back. <laughs> so, and so the point is, like, we, like, political operatives like myself are like, well, what would be the thing that would be most appealing to women over 50 in Ohio, yet not offend young people in Vegas, you know? And so it's just like, what, what's your, be honest, like, what's your answer? Who cares? Yeah. Um, we got some audience questions in a sec, but one last question yeah. from me. Um, the NBA draft is tomorrow night. Yes. <laughs> if you, if you. Thank you. Boo. I'm told there's um, someone running around here with a process versus everybody's shirt, and I like that person. Uh, I do not. <laughs> um, if you were a GM and you had a mock draft of uh, Trump associates, you're most excited about going to jail. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> Manafort is off the board. Okay. The Suns took Manafort. Okay. Um, who, <laughs> who is your number one pick? It is... I guess Paul Ryan does account as Trump associate. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. He's just yes. going to Janesville. Yes. Paul Ryan's not going to jail. He's just going to live permanently in a prison of his own moral failings. Yes. Um, my number one pick would be the man who is currently sitting in my office, my old office in the West Wing, Jared Kushner. <laughs> I've also been told it is a very nice office. It is the one... It's, it abuts the Oval Office. It's got a very large, nice wall where you can hang artwork that you can get from the Smithsonian. Jerry Kushner has not put artwork in his office. He has put not one, not two, not three, but four large flat screen TVs so he can watch cable television like his father-in-law all day long. <laughs> uh, conventional pick, but I'll take it. Yes. A lot of upside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, the first audience question 
uh, and please come find me afterwards because this is right in my strike zone. <laughs> Do you think part of the problem with the media landscape is that there are too many pundits and not enough journalists on all of these news shows? Huh, as a pundit. I, don't, I actually don't think that's the problem. And I say that as an actual CNN pundit. Um, <laughs> but I, look, I think when actual new, cable news, is that even, like we used to say cable news has to fill time. Everyone has to fill time now. The New York Times has to update stories 24-7 to keep traffic to the website so they can show them ads. Mm -hmm. That is just, that is the business model of everyone in the digital space. And when news happens, uh, the pundits go away, and then the news is reported. What I do think is a problem is Twitter, and I talk about this some in the book, is Twitter has allowed us to become a nation of pundits. We all now view politics through, I see these people in the audience being like, that's, that's me. <laughs> and, uh, and they allow, we view politics as commentators of, of a sport. And that's not, that's, that is the fault of everything. Like now when you do focus groups and you show people ads, the original point of doing that was to say, do you find this believable? Now people are like, I, you know, I don't know that that, I wouldn't focus on that issue. I'd focus on other, like they all treat it. Like it's basically, if you've ever had a conversation in a bar or a barber shop or anywhere else about sports, we now, that's a conversation we now have about politics. Who's up, who's down, what's the right strategy? And that's, that's bad. I also think as a purist about journalism, I think a lot of reporters yes. are behaving as pundits too because of Twitter. Yeah, they want attention as well. You, you would never have known the strategic, the opinions on strategy of reporters. The, what they used to just <clears> say <throat> to each other in the newsroom, they now tweet about. And they're holding- And they also think you're not like sitting across the wall like seeing exactly what they're saying. Yeah. That's, that's funny to yeah, me. Yeah, it's very <laughs> Um, all right, next question. Nice handwriting. Favorite historical moment working for President Obama, something many people might not know. My favorite is the, this has been talked about before, so people know this, but was um, the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Like, that was the best day we ever had in the White House. It would be, if Barack Obama were here right now, he would tell you it was his best night in the White House. Uh, the first lady was out of town because it was the girls' spring break and Obama couldn't go because we were passing health care. And it passed late on a Sunday night, and so Obama threw a party. And we all got to go up to the residence and uh, have one or two or several cocktails on the Truman balcony. And everyone was excited and happy. And then Obama would take people into the Lincoln bedroom and show us the Gettysburg Address. Whoa. And we think we all left around two in the morning. And we still had to be at work for the first meeting at 7.30. Because <laughs> I think we, Rom didn't come to the party and he didn't know the cancel the 7.30 staff meeting. Does Rom drink? Uh, I don't think so. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um. Rom doesn't need any other substances. He's doing fine as he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no uppers for Rom. Yeah. Um, uh, next question. I am nervous that people are now going to want a very entertaining president. We are now used to the idea of a Kardashian president. I'm scared we will never be able to uh, select a Reese, I can't read that, non-media person now. What do you think? I think the most likely Democratic nominee, the, the, the most likely next Democratic president will be the exact opposite of Trump. We usually, David Axelrod always says, 
people choose the, replace, the replacement, not the replica. And, and you see this. George, Barack Obama was the polar opposite temperamentally of George W. Bush. George W. Bush was seen as impetuous and not intellectually curious. Obama was seen as thoughtful and very intellectually curious and wonky. Trump is obviously the exact <laughs> opposite of Obama. And I think, I think we want a Democratic candidate who is, I don't, boring is not the right word. We don't want, no one wants boring. But I think you want someone who feels stable and steady and thoughtful and is going to get back to the business of running the country and not just bringing us to, like we don't, Trump has made it. I say this as a fan, but Trump has made it so that our politics seems more like the Real Housewives of New York than the West Wing. And I think we'll want someone to make it seem more like the West Wing after this. I, I, I am too worried, though, that it'll be hard to go back. I share this questioner's concern. It'll be bad for the media, for sure. Um, uh, yeah, that's true. Um, it's hard to imagine cable news being as like, resurgent today if Hillary Clinton was president. It's hard honestly. to imagine Pod Save America existing if yeah. Hillary Clinton was president. And I would say this to everyone. I would trade our very popular, fun podcast and all of your t-shirts <laughs> for a different president. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the merch is great, though. The merch is great. A-plus merch. Uh, how do you prepare for the pod tapings? Do you make an in-depth outline, or do you prepare for tangents? I, may, I write an in-depth outline uh, that I send to John Favreau. Middle of, the middle of the day on Wednesday before we tape, first thing, Thursday morning. And then shit happens. <laughs> and we redo most of it over text message that night. And then we tape the pod, and then shit happens. And so <laughs> it's, it's like sometimes, the, sometimes I'll be like, it, it, like no, events are never on our side. Sometimes I'll, I will be like, I'm not going to do the outline this morning. I'm going to wait till Trump does this rally. And then we'll do it. And then he, that'll be the one time in six months he reads the teleprompter and nothing exciting happens. And then I'll be like, all he has on his schedule is a roundtable of small business leaders. Like, I'll just get the outline done and get out of the house. Yeah. And then it's like, I mean, crazy shit happens. Yeah. And so it's, it's, a, it's a living document, if you will. As, as a, as a two-time guest of the pod, I will say, you guys do prepare a lot. There's a yeah. pretty good outline and you make it seem very casual and no bullshit, so yeah. respect. Um, <laughs> How do you think uh, Michael Bloomberg should spend the $80 million he's promised to uh, direct toward the midterms? Uh, sincerely, Ben NYC. Presumably not the same way Tom Steyer is spending $100 million in Iowa. I think it should, I think one, thank you, Michael Bloomberg, because we need our, we need our billionaires to spend their money to elect Democrats. That is what we need. And the, what I think he needs to do is spend it almost entirely in digital advertising. And it should be very, it should, what, what I think would be, this is what, if I had this money, here's what I would do. What problem we have right now is every day there are very compelling reasons that Republicans should be tossed out of office. It is these stories of corruption about Scott Pruitt. It is Trump cutting funding for uh, like clean water and clean air in the like most critical districts. It is Ivanka and Jared making $82 million while being public servants, uh, all these things. But that stuff gets blotted out of the sun by this very big, important Russia story. 
And so you hear Russia, Russia, Russia all the time and not this other stuff. So what I would do is I would take, I would do a very serious in-depth data project to find out what the, who the swing voters are in the 60 districts most likely to flip. I would find out what issue they care about and then I would bombard them with digital advertising. There was not a bunch of ads of guys talking, but it's just like showing them the news that they're not seeing because it's not breaking through the filter. And so exposing people to the terribleness of this administration would be a great way to spend money. I don't understand why some super PAC isn't spending money softening up uh, Trump and a lot Republican candidates in these Senate battleground states and these House races just on Scott Pruitt alone. Yeah. Like the culture of corruption or whatever. That's like so potent and no one's doing there it. There are some people who are doing a very good job on, particularly in the California districts, uh, with digital advertising around the tax plan, uh -huh. which is a real weight around their neck. But yeah, like I, if someone out there has a billion dollars and you were looking for a way to spend a portion of it, I will be signing books afterwards. I have a lot of thoughts. I can be helpful. Um, I make this pitch periodically and no billionaires ever reached out, so. This, this question is legendary and whoever sent this up here, find Dan after and get him to sign this index card. I'll give it to you. Um, I hate Paul Ryan. <laughs> Do you, you can't probably see it, but it says, I, like hate is so big. <laughs> Do you think you, Dan, hate him more than I do? <laughs> Keep that. I, here, let's go to my pocket. I, I don't know this person who wrote this very nice card, uh, how deep your hatred is. But if you think you hate him more than I do, it better be very deep. <laughs> Can I just say one thing about why I hate Paul Ryan? Yeah. Yes. Dude, I love this topic. So, people ask me all the time, why Paul Ryan? You could hate anyone. There are many hateable people. Mitch McConnell seems particularly hateable. Marco Rubio seems very hateable. John Levitt picked him in the draft, so he gets, he gets Rubio. <laughs> but the, what bothers me the most about Paul Ryan is Paul Ryan... I'll compare it to Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell looks in the mirror and he knows he's the bad guy. He's, he, he's, he wears the, someone once asked me, someone once tweeted at me, how does Mitch McConnell sleep at night? And I said he sleeps during the day hanging upside down. And so, <laughs> and so Paul Ryan thinks he's the good guy. He thinks, like, he, and he has made so many moral compromises to justify what he's doing, that he has lost himself in the process. He, he, would, if, he, is, he is very good, smart people who work for him. They actually listen to the podcast, which I find to be a real statement that they don't entirely disagree with me. There, there, are, there are many, we both know them, many Republican staffers on the Hill who like listen to the pod and will like, tweet at you guys and like send you emails like it, it's actually pretty funny to watch from yeah it's the very it's very weird yeah, yeah. but they would say they would say well the reason why paul ryan can't stand up to donald trump is if he were he would be tossed out as speaker and he'd be replaced by someone worse okay well <laughs> though here's the point if you're not gonna fucking do anything why do we care right it's just he he knows donald trump is bad he thinks Donald Trump is terribly unqualified for the office. 
He thinks Donald Trump is a racist. We know this because he said it in the campaign when he thought Donald Trump was going to lose. And now he is unwilling to say a single thing, a single thing against them. And just imagine going to work every day and thinking, here's what I'm going to do. We have an unfit, narcissist racist who's been accused 19 times of sexual assault, and I'm going to help him do it, finish his job. Like, that is a bad way to live. And he should know better, and he should do better. And he's not even running for office again. So at least some Republicans who have would face with no more political consequences have said something. He can't even send a sad tweet. It's embarrassing. Um, we have... Speaking of tweets, um, we'll do three more questions here. Um, can you please invite Jeff Flake on your podcast and ask him what is the purpose of his tweets without any action? <laughs> we talked about inviting Jeff Flake on the podcast once. And I can't imagine he would do it, first off. I don't you know, might. You should keep trying. Maybe, maybe, maybe we will. I would like to know what, like, does he feel better after the tweet? Are his kids nicer to him? But like, he's, <laughs> but like, my take on this is like, Flake is a Republican. So like, he's not going to like, vote against tax reform because he doesn't like Donald Trump. He's totally. not going to vote against like, the Obamacare repeal because he doesn't like Donald Trump. There are certain like, marginal things he can do as a senator, but like, what could he actually do? Well, he could hold up nominations. Mm -hmm. He could filibuster on the floor of the Senate. Mm -hmm. He could use his committee position to demand documents. He, could, like, he can't impeach Donald Trump by himself, but he could do things. Like, yeah, I understand he is a conservative Republican, and so I can't expect him to support my liberal policies. Like, I get that. But if you think, like Jeff Flake, Bob Corker, Ben Sass, Susan Collins, they think Donald Trump is unfit for office. We know this because they have said it. And if you think someone is unfit for office, in an office where you, could, you have actual nuclear codes, then you should try to do something. And the sad tweets make me insane. I wish he would stop with the sad tweets. Ben Sass is the worst offender in my book. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's worse. He's like a young like. guy. It's always more in sorrow than anger. And yeah. he's, just, he's just so sanctimonious. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe we'll try to have him on. I'd like to do that interview. I have thoughts. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah. All right. Second to last question. Uh, what issue do you think is not being discussed enough? Um, I'm going to put a twist on that. What issue do you think is not being discussed enough uh, by Democrats in the midterms? Like, what should they be talking about? Also, this person has hashtag trust the process. Oh, I like this person. Yeah. Um, I, it's so funny. I put uh, in my Twitter bio, I like Pontic America co-host worked in the White House, and I put process truster. And all the time, these like MAGA idiots tweet back at me when I like, <laughs> they're like, I thought you trusted the process. <laughs> like they don't know what it means. They have no idea. It's so funny. Oh my God. But fortunately, Philly fans don't fuck around, so they come at that person. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I think the issue we're not talking about enough is healthcare. I think we should be talking about healthcare every day, and we should be linking it to the tax cut, because what the Republicans did is they decided that people are going to have to pay higher premiums so that Donald Trump, Goldman Sachs, and the Koch brothers could get a giant tax cut. And that pisses people off. And now that they've raised the jacked up deficit to do it, 
they want to cut your Medicare and Social Security to pay for it. And so linking healthcare to the tax cut is the thing. People are doing it. I get a chance to see a lot of the candidates who are out there just like particularly in California campaigning, and, they're, and they are doing it, mm -hmm. but it should be the w number one, two, three, and four issues. What is, what is the exact, like what's the lane in? Like in Ohio, is it like talk about opioids? Is it, is it healthcare costs? It's healthcare, it's pretty, people's premiums are going up, and premium reports come out, the insurance companies will announce premium increases in the fall right before the election. So I hope people like Michael Bloomberg are hoarding some of that money and you're gonna use it massively to communicate that to people, but we, you got to set the stage for that. It can't just be like, oh, premiums went up. Why did that happen? We have to spend all this time every single day. And the hard part is the media is obsessed with Russia, which is a totally fair thing to be obsessed about because it, it is the if it turns out that what we believe happened, it's the greatest political scandal in American history. And, but because of that, Democrat, Democratic candidates and politicians have to be so disciplined. Every press interview, they have to turn it to the, this core issue. Every, every ad, every conversation at the door, Every, th every phone call our volunteers are making and be incredibly disciplined because we can't control what is going to be trending on Twitter. We can't control what is going to be in the front page of the New York Times. We can't control what comes out of our mouths. And so we can't go down this rabbit hole of trying to chase every news cycle. You have to tell your story with relentless discipline every single day. Um, all right, this is a final question. After this, everyone remember, more margaritas, and Dan is going to sign your books, so please hang out. Um, and I, I'm really curious about this, too. Because I know Obama is a thinker about media. Obviously, he has this Netflix content deal. When, when I interviewed him for Snapchat for Good Luck America, he, because Sasha and Malia used Snapchat, he understood its power. Yeah. And we had a really long conversation, uh, which we had to edit down to five minutes for Snapchat, yeah. uh, about um, just information flow today. Um, so the question is, in working with Obama, did you ever get the sense that in talking to him that he understood before Trump that like where we're at now was even a possibility, that this was coming. I'm so glad you brought that up because in my book, Yes, We Still Can, <laughs> which is available here, um, I tell a story about a conversation Barack Obama and I had after the 2014 election. And something, so 2008, we were internet geniuses. We figured it all out. We were ahead of the curve. 2012. It felt like the world had changed, but we were still sort of at the pace of change. We still had strategy. We were able to get our message out. We were able to be on offense. We controlled, you know, campaigns are a lot about, it's a lot like a soccer match or, or any sport event. It's like if you, ha if you control the ball, you win. And so we had, we controlled what was talked about by, by being on offense the whole time. We weren't on, our, on defense much at all in the campaign. 2014 comes around. We have these elections. We get our, our ass kicked. We lose the Senate. It's very bad. And over the course of time, so Obama calls me into the Oval Office, and I was pretty nervous because I knew he wasn't going to fire me, but I knew that we were going to have one of those conversations about our communication strategy falling behind, which we'd had a couple times, like after the 2010 election, like you mentioned. And I went in there, and what Obama said to me was, in 2008, we were so far ahead of the curve. He said, in 2012, we were kind of at the curve, but now we've fallen behind the curve. We've been on, de on defense for a year now, whether it was the Ebola freak out, or these sort of pseudo scandals around the IRS targeting Tea Party groups, or these other things. He's like, we just can't get ahead of it. And something had fundamentally changed. And what Obama understood is something had fundamentally changed about how people were receiving information. And like, we used to do these focus groups. And this is what Obama kind of latched onto. And so you get a group of, you know, 
undecided voters in a room. And we would ask them, this is back in 2009, 2010, up to the 2012 election, and we would be like, like Washington would be obsessed about this one thing, like Obama golfing too much, right? They'd be like, <laughs> Obama golfs too much. And we would we'd ask the focus groups, and Republicans would put out press release, and Sean Hannity's head's exploding, and every, like, everyone's focused on golf. We asked the focus, the focus group, like, have you heard anything about Obama golfing? And they're like, Obama golfs? That's cool, I golf. Like, and they just didn't know. They just, it just like what, like what Washington was obsessed about, what was like on Fox News, was not breaking through to the voters we were most concerned about. You know, these are not hardcore Obama supporters. These are people who most likely voted for George W. Bush in 2004 and Obama in 2008. And they're sort of independent, dem independents who lean Democrat, but kind of go back and forth. <clears throat> 2014, we do these focus groups. And these people now know everything. They can recite chapter and verse, every little pseudo scandal, every bit piece of bad news, and they're doing it from a framework that is not the New York Times framework, the sort of objective, here's what's happening, but like with the framing of Fox News and the right. And what had happened in the interim was Facebook had reached this tipping point, and the right had built up these, these groups like Breitbart, they were just pumping this viral content into Facebook. So now, and, P and Facebook had moved mobile. So now, like your parents are sitting in the grocery line and they're just scrolling through Facebook like, oh, there's, uh, there's my, niece, my nephew. I see uh, my kids in college. Barack Obama founded ISIS. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Barack Obama hates soldiers, you know, and they just, it was like getting through to them in a way. And so he, he understood the change. And so with the limited resources of the White House, what he did is he sent me out to Silicon Valley to meet with every single person you could possibly meet with and try to think about what to do. And we came, what we basically came up with was this content strategy that we were going to try to do, create as much of our own content as possible, pump it, use our, the platform of the White House to pump it out there and try to like dilute what people were seeing. And it had success for Obama because... His numbers came back up again. He left office as a very popular president. But to, I did not realize at the time how powerful it was and what a gigantic impact it would have in 2016. Because what was true in 2014 was five times more powerful in 2016. And so, yeah, I would say Obama saw the change. He, like he, he's sort of in a weird way like a social media caveman because he went into the White House right when Facebook became a thing that people who were Obama's age would be on. And so he was never on Facebook. He had a Twitter account, but he never looked at Twitter, which I thank God for every day. Um, and, but he had kids who did. They were of the exact right age. To, even though they weren't allowed to be on Facebook, they knew he was part of conversations about it and knew about Snapchat. But he was, he's a very... Uh, He's a, very, he's a very smart guy. He's a very good guy. But he uh, had a very insightful view, just of, it's not really media, right? It's not like the state of the New York Times or the state of CNN. It is the very fundamental question of how people consume and distribute information. Mm -hmm. And he saw the change in 08, which is how we used the internet to win that election to organize and raise money and communicate. And he, he was sort of the canary in the coal mine on the real clusterfuck that we're currently in. Um, great. On that can we, note, can we end on, on, yeah. on, on a hopeful note? End on a hopeful note. Pick okay. one. So, this book is a hopeful book, and I say that not just because I hope you bought it, but because people ask me all the time, should they be hopeful? And the my answer is yes, because 
I think we are at a, there's an existential question about the moment we're in. Is, was the Barack Obama era an aberration between Bush and Trump? It just happened that he won because of the moment in politics post the Iraq war and that he was a very talented politician and that our politics re really heading towards one that looks more like Donald Trump. Or, <laughs> or is Donald Trump a reaction to Obama who won by a, an amazing a set of circumstances that could never possibly repeat itself? and that Trump is a speed bump on the path to a, a more thoughtful, more progressive, more decent, more inclusive, more diverse America, one that looks more like Obama, Obamaism than Trumpism. That's what I believe. But I call it conditional hope because it's not inevitable that that will happen. It requires every one of us, whether we're a podcast host or a podcast listener, to do something about it. And that is why Swing Left is here tonight. That is why uh, we do so much work with Swing Left and individual and groups like that. And so if we want that, we have to go make it happen. And there has never been a more important election than the one this fall. Because if, these, if it, the, the only thing that's keeping the Republicans from basically looting Washington right now is the fear that they will lose office. So if we go through two years of Donald Trump's corruption, racism, indecency, cruelty, and they keep in power, Katie barred the door. And so my message with this book and everyone else is that we, that we have agency here. We control what happens. And so we just have to do the job before us. And every one of us can do it. You can find five of your friends on Facebook and make sure they vote. You all know people who live in some of these swing districts or know people who live in these swing districts and do it. So my, just like we do on Save on Positive America, this is about activism. And so if people are active and do the job, then we will look back in sadness at this moment, but it will only be a moment, so. Um. Uh, Dan, congrats on the book. Thank you. Congrats on fatherhood. Go Knicks. Have a good night. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.